All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6, not Luke. We're actually going to look at a, a portion of the Sermon on the Mount this morning as we begin our series on the disciplines of the godly life. Uh, every Christian has things to do. We're all kind of busy. I think uh, if you've lived somewhere else, uh, and you're not in New York City or one of the big cities, and you've come here, you see how frantic people live. Uh, it's you, you go somewhere else and, you know, the light turns green and they look right. They look left and they go across the intersection while you're back. They're going, what's wrong with you? You know, I'm from California. We go when the light's green, we go across as fast as we can. And, uh, so everybody kind of lives in a different place. Everybody's in a different situation, but everybody's given the same Bible. With the same exhortations and the same commands and the same 24 hours in a day. And we need to use those for the glory of God. There are certain things we need to make priorities in our life. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're a Christian, there are certain priorities you must put in your life. These are not options. These are things God wants you to do. The resolutions. As a Christian, I do These things. They're called the godly disciplines. They're called the godly disciplines for a couple reasons. One, if you don't do them, you won't be godly. And two, it takes discipline to do them consistently. And that's really how it is. I think all of us know what it's like to, you know, we know we should go exercise, ride the bike or jog or walk or go to the gym or whatever. And your body says, you know, I would take it easy if I was you. I would have another bowl of ice cream. Just sit there. Let it soak in. You can work out later. And so our flesh really would have us just waste away and die, kill us. And so that's why we need to master our our bodies and make them our slaves. As Paul says, beat them into submission. So that our bodies do what we know is right, not what feels good, but what honors the Lord. And that's why Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You have to discipline yourself if you want to be godly. It doesn't just happen. I'm sorry. If I asked you to dig a hole and said, here, I want you to dig a big hole. Here's a teaspoon. It's like... A teaspoon? Yeah, you can get the job done with a teaspoon. I mean, it'd be better if I gave you a shovel and really good if I gave you a backhoe. But either way, you could get the job done. You have a tool to get the job done. Well, God gives us tools, gracious tools. He gives us things to get the job done of growing in godliness. And those tools we need to put into practice to work. The process of growing in godliness is called sanctification. It's a big word that means growing in godliness. It is the process of becoming more holy, more like Jesus. And it is a process. And anybody who's been a Christian more than a minute knows that. You don't just wake up all perfect one day. But contrary to what many Christians think, grace isn't always an invisible force. It isn't always something that kind of just zaps you. Like lightning. It sometimes is that way. 
There are invisible forces involving God's grace, his providence that steers us, his Holy Spirit that convicts us and guides us. Uh, um, you know, we see our lives changing sometimes and we didn't really do anything that we know of. Uh, he controls circumstances. Uh, there's a lot of things that God is doing in the invisible realm that, he, that we don't have nothing to do with. They're part of his grace towards us. And yes, there are those aspects, but there are these other tangible things. That he gives us like tools and says, dig the hole. And we need to do it. Now, what is grace? Grace is really receiving undeserved, unearned favor from God. Some people like to say gracious gifts from God. Either way works. Both are fine. You don't deserve God's grace. You deserve his judgment because you've sinned against him and he is holy. However, though you deserve to be judged, God extends grace to you. And he, is, he gives you things you haven't earned and you don't deserve. Let's say you're dying of some terrible disease and a, a, your doctor says, listen, you know, there is a cure. But it is so hugely expensive that insurance companies won't pay for it. And I know you don't have insurance, so you're just going to die. And you get really mad at the doctor and you call him all sorts of names because you're scared of dying and you go home and you think evil thoughts about him and you write him nasty letters and you, you have a full page newspaper ag slandering him and he loses his practice and his reputation because of what you've done and you're pining away and you're almost dead and all of a sudden you get the, there's a knock at the door and there's a package, a special delivery and somebody who's helping you die, the hospice care, brings the package in and opens it up and there's a note from the doctor that says, I have sold my house and all of my possessions. I've purchase the medicine for you if you take it according to the instructions you will live that is grace because you didn't deserve the medicine you didn't pay for the medicine in fact you did quite the opposite you were not deserving of the medicine and yet you received it and that is really a picture of what christ has done we were enemies of God, we sinned against God, we deserve the judgment of God, and yet Christ came to die for sinners on the cross so that we, through faith in him, could not only be saved, but grow in sanctification, because the means of salvation must match the means of sanctification. That is, if you're going to be saved by grace, which you are, you have to be sanctified by grace. But this is where it's confusing, because a lot of times people think, well, well what does that mean? You know, if I were to say, draw a picture of grace, what would you draw? A cross? Okay. Uh, what else? See, a lot of times nothing comes to mind because people don't attach anything tangible to grace. Most people think of grace as the invisible workings of God. And some of it is that way. But God gives grace to all men. It's called common grace. That's what theologians call it because it's common to all men. He causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall and the just and the unjust. But he also gives what are called special grace to those he saves, the elect. These are the, these are the salvation, of course, is the primary. And then all the spiritual gifts and the ability to understand the scriptures, the power to obey the scriptures, the fellowship of the believers. All of these things God gives us. And if you think about it, like, what are the things God gives us that we need to do something with in order to grow in godliness? They are his gift to us. The Bible is the biggest one. 
This is what the Puritans called the primary means of grace. The way we receive grace is we read, study, meditate, memorize the word of God. Prayer. Prayer. The ability to boldly approach the throne of grace to find help in a time of need. Other believers who encourage us, admonish us, are examples for us. Spiritual books and resources. Uh, the ability to do evangelism. Spiritual gifts. The power to use those gifts. The opportunity to use those gifts. All of these things are part of God's special grace to the believer. And when combined with common grace in the lives of believers, we have skills and talents and money and resources resources and things that God has given us, we can take our common gifts, combine them with our spiritual gifts and use them all for the glory of God. And that's what God wants you to do. But God hands you these certain spiritual gifts, these graces, these things to help you grow in godliness on a golden platter and says, take your medicine and you'll become more like Jesus. Don't take your medicine, you'll pine away. You'll shrivel up as a Christian. And so you must discipline yourself to use God's means of grace. You can talk to the pastors, the elders, the people who do counseling here. You can ask them and say, you know, um, what, is the co- what is the relationship between somebody who's very faithful in the godly disciplines and somebody who isn't as far as their walk with the Lord? Listen, we never have anybody come in. Listen, my marriage is shot. I'm anxious. I'm worried. I'm spending three hours of prayer every day. I'm reading the Bible. I'm going to Bible study. I'm involved in a small group. I'm serving these ministries. I come to church every Sunday. Every time the doors open, I come here. We never find that. They come in here. Yeah, you know, I'm really struggling with this or that. Well, are you reading your Bible? Well, no. Are you reading any good books? Well, no. Are you praying? No. And you wonder why you're not doing good in the Lord. That is a mystery. A mystery. Not. And that's why we're doing this series. From here on out through the summer and into the fall a little bit, we're going to be looking at the godly disciplines. And we're going to kind of take a more Puritan approach than uh, than usually. You might think, well, what is that? The Puritans like to give lots of application in their sermons. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to try and stay away uh, from long, detailed exegesis with a little application. And we're just going to try and give you a lot of practical things that you can go do to improve yourself. And you talk to a lot of people who say things like, you know, I want to be faithful in reading my Bible. And I've tried this and I've tried that. I keep failing and I don't know what to do. I'm going to give you some ideas you can try. Now, what I hope for each of you is that as you come each Sunday uh, between now and the fall, that you begin to put into practice, if you aren't already, the things you learn just a little bit at a time. To discipline yourself so that as we go through, they will accumulate and see if by the end of the summer you can fit all these things God commands you to do in your life. Like you're supposed to, like Christians do, so that you can have a blessing, closeness with the Lord, joy, peace, great marriage, godly kids, and all the things that come from having a close relationship with Christ and not have to suffer so much because you can't quite get your act together. Or I'm going to try and help you get your act together. So if you're one of those people who says, I just need help, then you're going to get it. Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 8. Jesus is 
giving in the middle of what is called the Sermon on the Mount. There are some cliffs to the west of the Sea of Galilee that go up some 1,200 feet at the cliffs of Arbel. And on the backside of these cliffs, the, the ground tapers down slowly. And so you can actually walk around the backside and walk up to the face where it's just straight down rocks. And you can see all of the Sea of Galilee and all of the area. It is so magnificent. It's just, I stood there and just thought, whoa. And what we read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, is that Jesus saw the crowds, he was in Galilee, and went up on the mountain. We don't know if it's our bell or another one, but if I was Jesus, I would have went up there. Because it is, it's incredible. So Jesus is up on some sort of mountain with some sort of view, and people have come and crowded around, and he first gives them the Beatitudes, he talks to them about being examples in the world. He gives them instruction about loving neighbor, giving to the poor, praying. And then um, uh, when you look in the text, you find out that Jesus has a little theme going on here in chapter 6, especially the first half of chapter 6. And it's really secrets between you and the Lord. He actually mentions three secrets that need to be kept between you and the Lord. In Matthew chapter 6 verse 4, he says we are to give in secret. Matthew 6 verse 6, we are to pray in secret. And Matthew 6 18 says we are to fast in secret. So these are these little secret disciplines that nobody sees. And these are really, you know, the engine, the combustion chamber of your life as a Christian. These are what make you run as a Christian. All the other things you can do have to be fed by these things. These these secret devotions to the Lord. And so look at me, look with me at Matthew chapter 6 and and I'm going to read verses 5 through 8. This is probably a familiar text to most of you, but I want you to just be reminded of of This practice of structured prayer. What I mean by structured prayer is prayer between you and God by yourself. Where you say, at this time, I'm going to go here and pray in a structured way about these things. Structured prayer. That's what we're talking about. Jesus says this, starting in verse 5 of Matthew 6. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. But you, when you pray... Go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. I'm just going to break this down into two pieces. One, the doctrine and meaning of the text, and two, the application of it. First, understand the doctrine of private prayer. So Jesus gives us this little prayer sandwich. Uh, There's kind of a piece of moldy bread on either side with honey in the middle. You'll see why if you didn't pick it up already. Look at verse 5 where Jesus begins, when you pray, just stop there. Notice Jesus doesn't, he doesn't say if you pray or when you pray, but when, or, or if you pray, but when you pray, when you're doing prayer. He doesn't think you might pray, but assumes that if you're his follower, you're going to pray. Why? Because Christians pray. They pray. He says the same thing in verse 6 and the same thing in verse 7. It means that Jesus' followers will by nature, by salvation, be prayers. 
They will be prayers. They will be praying to him. The phrase might be summarized or paraphrased if you take into account the Greek tense here. When you cause yourself to pray like you should. Or when you choose to take the time to pray as you should. Christians pray. They don't just pray in emergencies. And they don't just pray when they want something big. They pray all the time. It's just like breathing to them. They're constantly talking to God. They don't even realize it. They just like... You know, if I said, do you remember breathing a minute ago? It's like, well, I guess so. Well, you're all not passed out, so I, I can see your breathing. But we don't even think about breathing. We just do it. It's just kind of involuntary response. This is what it's like for Christians who know the Lord. They just talk to the Lord. You're walking down the street, something happens, oh, Lord. You know, you see somebody, the Lord. Oh, thank you, Lord. Oh, praise God. You know, you're just, it just comes out of you. You're just... We're going to talk about next week impromptu prayer, but prayer is something that Christians do. Look towards the beginning of verse 5, where we come to our first piece of moldy bread. You are not to be like the hypocrites. The word hypocrite is an actor, a pretender, a two-faced person, one who pretends to be something they're not. We're not to pretend to be pious and to use big words and to pray for the ears of men rather than speaking to God, which is what prayer is. Prayer is when you speak to God, not when you speak to men. Look at the middle of verse 5 where we are given specific examples of how to, how hypocrites pray and the reason they pray. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and the street corner so that they might be seen by men. This is what they love, men. They want, they want the stage. They want the street corner so you can be seen from four angles. Oh, Lord God Almighty, you who are enthroned above and seated among the cherubims, I beseech you. Throw in a little bit of, you know, Elizabethan angles. I beseech thee. I implore thee and asketh thee in all humility. You throw in some jargon in there too to impress people. Thus the hypocrite tunes his prayers to be heard by men. He wants people to be impressed with him. He, want, he prays so that his whole time is thinking, well, this will wow them. This will impress them. This will show them I'm this way or that. And you know what? If you pray that way, you're not even praying. You're speaking to men. You're playing the part of the hypocrite. You're acting out something you're not. The hypocrite is a magnet. And the praises of men are like iron filings. Which he's constantly drawing to himself. To, he, just, he just wants it. And notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 5. Truly I say to you they have their reward in full. What is the reward of the hypocrite? Any attention. Any glory. Any fame they can extract from other people. That's why they pray. Look at verse 6, where we begin, we give him the honey of how to pray. But when you, but you, but when, but you, when you pray, notice he has two U's here, and notice the double U. In contrast to being a hypocrite, but you, that is in contrast to that, go into your inner room, where no one sees, close your door, so no one can see you, pray to your father who is in secret, so no one can see you. There's four second persons in this text, two yous and two yours. It's about you praying to your heavenly father in secret. You can't pray for the approval of men if they don't know you're praying. 
if they can't see you're praying. Now, granted, you could, you know, sound the trumpet, Wife, I'm going into my inner chamber to pray to the Most High God right now to get on my knees and beg Him. You know, I mean, you could do that and, you know, let your wife know, I'm going to be godly now, honey, and then you'll have your reward in full. But if you go in secret and no one knows you're praying, if you have a secret spot to pray, then it's just you and Jesus. And you can't impress it. It's just you get real. You don't have to roll your R's or stretch out your O's. Lord God. He's not impressed with Elizabethan English. You could just be yourself because he already knows. He wants that broken, humble, and contrite spirit. Look at the middle of verse 6 where Jesus now tells us the blessing of secret prayer and how it, or why it works. And your father who sees in secret, sees what is done in secret will reward you. He wants you to come to him in secret without anybody watching, anybody noticing, anybody impressed, without rolling your R's and stretching out your O's, without lapsing into Elizabethan English when you don't speak that. And he wants you to just... Talk to him and ask him for things so that he can bless you. But there's an error we can fall into even when we pray in secret. This is the other piece of moldy bread. Verse 7. And when you, and when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. Don't think... That if you pray a hundred times in a row in a prayer sitting, that it's going to like manipulate God. You get out the little counter. Lord, I want a Ferrari. 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 I want for a hundred times. And think, well, now I'll get one. Probably not. Um, I tried it and it didn't work. <laughs> but yeah, you, 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 you have this thought. Some people do. You can have this thought that if I pray more times in a row that it's like putting more money in the slot machine. You keep pulling the lever, hoping you'll hit the jackpot. No. God doesn't manipulate like that. You don't get it that way. Now, this is not to be confused with persistent or important, fortunate prayer. That is prayer that is, that, you know, your, your child doesn't know the Lord. And so you're constantly going to the Lord throughout the day, throughout the week, asking for your child's salvation. That is encouraged. That is taught in the parable of the unjust judge. But thinking that the volume of prayers, that if you pray the same thing every prayer sitting for a bunch of times, a, you know, a thousand Hail Marys or Our Fathers, that somehow that's going to, Make God do something for you. God is not manipulated, so don't go there. Look at the middle of verse 8, where Jesus explains why vain repetition is futile. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You know what? God knew every prayer you were going to pray before the foundation of the world. Think about that. You never supply God with new information. He doesn't go, you're kidding me. You lost your job? He's never up there going, man, I wonder what's going on in Jack's life. I can't wait for him to pray so I can figure it out. He's always known. For eternity he has known. I never supply him with any new information. And you never supply him with any new information. Now this may think you think, well then why pray? I mean, why not just say, well, Lord, you know, twice a year and get it over with. Because prayer is... For you and your good. 
See, prayer is an act of your dependence upon God. When you go to God in prayer, you go to God because you think he has resources you don't. When you go to God, God in prayer, you're obeying his command, which is how we love him. When you go to God in prayer, you go to him in prayer because you have faith that God exists. And it's good to live that. You are humbling yourself. It's good to humble yourself. See, prayer requires a lot of things from us that are good for us. And then when we pray and God gives us the answer to our prayer, sometimes he says no, sometimes yes, and sometimes wait. Sometimes wait a long time. But when he gives us an answer, we then praise him and we thank him. He gets the glory. And then we tell other people. We get on Facebook and say, hey, guess what? And then other people go, praise God. And then they're praising him. And now praying is a means that God gets glory for himself. And a means that he makes us more godly. Because we're humbling ourselves. We're acknowledging our need. We're trusting him. We're living by faith. We're praising him. So prayer is for our benefit, not for God's information. That's why vain repetition, Jesus says, is really not very smart. So don't do it. All right. So let's say now we realize we need to find that secret place where we pray to God. And you realize, you know, I need to do this. I know I need to do this. But man, I don't even know where to start. Well, here you go. First, Schedule a specific time or times every day for structured prayer. This is where it begins. If I were to come up to you and say, hey, uh, so how's your prayer life? And if you're like anybody who's honest, it's not as good as it should be. But if I were to ask you, so when do you pray? And you would say, well, I pray at... Is there something you could put in that blank? If there isn't, I can tell you right now, your prayer life is shot. Because we don't just spontaneously have structured prayer times. We have to plan to do it. It's like coming to church on Sunday. Now, hopefully you just didn't realize you're at church. How did I get here? (laughs) No, you set your alarm. You know, you took a shower. You had breakfast. You drank some coffee. You drove here. You sat down. There were plans. You made efforts. You thought, on Sunday, I am going to church. I am going to drive to such and such a location. You are making effort to do that. Well, that's what you have to do in structured prayer. Anybody, when they're pitched off a cliff, can call out to God on the way down. That is the natural response. But the question is, do you have those times where you sit down in structured prayer to pray? To pray. The first step is saying, I am going to pray at what time? You pick the time. You say, well, I'm just not a morning person. Don't make me pray in the morning. I beg you. Well, you know what? I've seen a lot of morning people become non-morning people or, or people who weren't morning people become morning people after disciplining themselves. But let's just say that you have an incurable case of sleepyhead in the morning and that a lot of times you're at work. You don't even know how you got there when you wake up at 10. Well, you might be the person who needs to, let's say, um, schedule all your lunches. And when people say, hey, you want to go lunch? They no. Uh, at lunchtime, I go out, I sit in my car in the parking structure or out on a bench by the office and I pray or I, you know, go through a walk in the woods by the river. So you go, well, we don't have any rivers. This is California. 
Well, then you go for a walk among the skyscrapers and the paved road. I don't know. But you go out and you, you, you have a place where you say, this is when I pray. I'm sorry. This is when I do it. I don't do that. This is when I do it. And then you have a contingency. If something comes up and the boss says, you must come to lunch. It's like, okay, then I'm going to pray contingency. When are you going to do that? You'll never be faithful. You'll never be faithful in prayer unless you begin to plan to pray. You have a time when you do it. Here is a helpful bit of wisdom. And this applies to all the disciplines we're going to talk about. And I'm going to give it to you up front here because it applies to everything else. The most difficult part of developing any godly discipline is making it a habit. Once it's a habit, then you, it just automatically stretches out. So let's say if you're going to try, if you don't have any structured prayer in your life, try 10 minutes a day. 10 minutes a day. That's like, you know, one commercial spot on TV. 10 minutes a day. Now we're talking, you know, nothing. 10 minutes a day, but do it every single day. Every single day, I'm just going to, just for 10 minutes, even make yourself stop at 10. I'm only going to do 10. Okay, and then do it. And pretty soon you're like, Lord, please let me, let me go 12 minutes. Why? Because you're going to get blessed. As soon as you develop the habit, you think, you know what? I like this. This is good. I need to pray longer. I need to talk with the Lord more. I just feel like my whole spiritual gas tank is getting filled up. And man, I'm able to run hard for Jesus all day and cope with problems. And I just have God in my mind. If I just set aside some time to pray. Do that. So you've got your time. Start small. Develop the habit. Then stretch it out. Secondly, find a place where you can pray undisturbed. Undisturbed. And again, it may be for a walk in the city. I don't know. But try to find a place where you can pray undisturbed. Maybe in the garage. It may be in the kitchen. Uh, the favorite of Susanna Wesley who would sit herself down in the middle of the kitchen and pull her apron over her head. Her kids knew. Mom's praying. No one would bother her. They would get their hide tanned. It's like, okay, Mom's praying. Kids, get away from her. Well, why? She taught them, listen, when I sit down in the kitchen and I put my apron over my head, if you bother me, you're going to wish you didn't. Because <laughs> I'm going to spend time with the Lord. And you know what? All of you parents, your children need to know that your time with the Lord is more important than they are. You must teach them that. That relationship with the Lord is the most important thing. And so you teach them, listen, when you see dad over here, don't bother him. I'm praying. I'm talking to the Lord. And you need to spend some time with the Lord. You may have to find some creative place. I've seen people praying inside of stairwells and all kinds of things. It's just, it's like, it's the only place I can go. I'm just trying to get alone. And, you know, you have to do that. Maybe go to work early before anybody gets there. Sit down at your desk and pull out your Bible and spend some time with the Lord. Find a place. Third, can make sure you confess your sins. We talked about it earlier. Just wanted, you have to be honest with God. You can't come to God with a bunch of sin in your life and expect him to hear your prayers. He does not hear the prayer of the wicked. David said, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. You're kidding yourself. If you want to boldly approach the throne of grace, dragging the dead carcass of your own 
sin and say, hey, Lord, uh, could you bless me over here? And he's going, what is that? And you're going, well, we're not talking about that. I was hoping that you could, you can't play the mind game with God. He sees everything. You can't go, okay, well, I know I'm committing this sin, but I'm going to go pray now. I'm not, Lord, I'm going to pretend like I don't see this and you don't see this, so I can ask you for some other things. No, no. He's never deceived. He knows everything already. He's always known everything. He wants you to come before him and be honest. You say, but, but what if I really like my sin? Then tell him. Say, Lord, I'm entangled in the sin. I love my sin. I want to repent of it and I want to confess it, but I'm having difficulty. You need to change my heart. You need to help me hate it. I know it. Nail Jesus at the cross and I know Satan loves it. I'm just, I'm having trouble. Can you fix me? I beg you to fix me. That's what you do. You get honest with God. You don't sit there and go, well, Lord, you know I hate this sin. Right now. And that um, I, I know it drives a wedge between me and you. So for this moment, we're going to link up and soon I'll go back to my sin. And, you know, that's, that's, what's that? That's just more hypocrisy, isn't it? Yeah, be honest with God. He knows everything already. When you step into the throne room of God, you're dealing with somebody who knows you better than you do. And so you you can just be totally honest with God. He already knows. He knows everything. All your sins, all your fears, everything. He just knows everything. You just talk to him. He's the wonderful counselor. Four, pray mostly about spiritual and eternal things. You know, it's okay to pray for health and it's okay to pray for food and it's okay to pray for jobs and things. Those are all fine. But the bulk of your prayers should not be about finances and health and things like that. The bulk of your prayers should be about knowing God, obeying God, serving God, people coming to Christ. Do things that are going to matter for eternity. When you're in heaven for 10,000 years, bright, shiny as the sun, then pray about those things that are going to matter then. Not whether the, I don't know. You get the right jeans or sunglasses or whatever. Pray about the things that matter the most as the bulk of your prayer life. You can pray about all things, but make sure those things are in there. That's what we see Jesus and the authors of Scripture praying for, eternal things. Five, pray with zeal, with passion, but with reverence. You don't want to get too wound up to where you're all emotion and no reverence. Lord! And it was like, whoa. He's kind of lost it. He's kind of lost it. No, you, God is a consuming fire. But have passion. Have zeal when you pray. Thomas Watson in the Godly Man's Picture says this. How odious it is for a man to be all fire when he is sinning and all ice when he is praying. A pious heart like water seething hot, boils over in holy affections. The Jews did not spare any cost in their idolatrous worship. No, they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire to Moloch. Jeremiah thirty-two thirty-five. They were so zealous in their idol worship that they would sacrifice their sons and daughters to their false gods. How far the purblind heathen went in their false zeal when the tribunes of Rome complained that they wanted gold and their treasuries to offer to Apollo. The Roman matrons plucked off their chains of gold and rings and bracelets and gave them to the priest to offer up as a sacrifice. 
Were these so zealous in their sinful worship? And will you, you not be zealous in the worship of a true God? And when you pray, man, get on it. Talk to God. He wants to see that you're in earnest. Not, Lord, I come before you and I just want to thank you for my, my salvation. And Jesus dying on the cross for me. And, and um, oh man, you need some gas poured on you and poof. You know, you need to catch some fire. Get some zeal in your prayer life. We talked about how if you fall asleep in your prayers, get on your knees. It's like, well, I still fall asleep. Get on your knees on concrete. I still fall asleep. Get on your knees on gravel on concrete. That'll keep you awake. Six, find what kind of structured prayer works for you. You know, a lot of people come to me and go, well, Pastor Jack, you know, I want to, I want to have a good prayer life and I want to have it structured so that it works well, you know, for, you know, for me. Well, what do you do? And what I do probably doesn't work for you. I don't know. I'm not you. Some people have their own little way they do things. And that's good. You need to find out. You need to try different things and try whatever works the best. Keep trying. It's good to kind of keep mixing up your prayer and try different things to do that. You say, well, like what? Well, let me just give you some examples. You can, a lot of people like to have a prayer journal or a prayer list. Uh, one of the things I do is I, you know, we get the prayer list every week and I pray through that in pieces. You know, I have a chunk I pray through on Tuesday and a chunk I pray through on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. So those four days I pray through all the prayer requests that are given every week. That's what I do. I break it up into pieces. I go through every one of them. Uh, so you say, okay, so uh, we can do that. Yeah. And maybe make a prayer list, have a prayer journal. I have a Bible program that you can make your own prayer list. You can add, subtract things and they come up. I can say how frequently I want to pray for them. And it just gives me a list and I just click them off as I pray. It's, it works great. I mean, there's a million things you can do, but just do something. Keep, try some different things, but you know, you need to keep track of what you're praying for. So when God answers, you can say, praise God. He did got that one. One time I was at seminary and we hadn't had any children. And one of the professors asked me, he says, is there anything I can pray for? He said, yeah, we're thinking of having some kids. He says, well, I'll put that on my prayer list. And I graduated from seminary and came back uh, several years later. And the professor walked up to me and said, now, I've been praying for you that you could have children. How's that going? Uh, three. We've got three. Um, stop praying, you know. Uh, there was... He had been praying, I think, for five or six years for us. And uh, I forgot all about it. But he added on a prayer list. He goes, oh, good. It'll be good to check that off. It was an older one. B, pray through the scriptures. A lot of people say, well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Let me just give you some examples. You're, you're reading in Genesis and... You come upon to that place where Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord and says, I will not let go of you until you bless me. And you say, Lord, give me a zeal like Jacob. Give me a love for your blessing like Jacob. Help me to be willing to do whatever it takes to get your blessing. I want your blessing and I want the zeal that Jacob had for your blessing. Obviously, he was a scoundrel. 
He was a deceiver. But one thing he had right in his life is he wanted your blessing in his life, and I want that too. There you go. You're... You're reading in the book of Leviticus and you're at one of those places where you're at the other sacrifice and cut off the fat on the lobe of the kidneys and set it on the fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. And you're thinking, oh, no. Um, And you think, well, what is this about? What are all the sacrifices? What do they all symbolize? Jesus, the ones for all sacrifice. Say, Lord, I am so thankful I don't have to kill animals anymore, which can never take away the blood Uh, The sins by the blood of bulls and goats. I can never take away our sins, but Jesus can. I thank you that you sent him to earth. I thank you that he is the once for all sacrifice, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I just thank you, Lord. I praise you for sending Jesus, who is the great high priest, who is not only the sacrifice, but the high priest who takes his own blood into the holy of holies to make atonement for my sin. Leviticus becomes very fun now. Very practical. You're reading about one of the wicked kings of Israel. Lord, help me not to be like this guy. He was an idol worshiper. He did evil more than his fathers before him. Look at what this guy did. Oh, Lord, I know I've done stuff like that. I know I'm still doing that. I know that there's things in my life that I'm putting before you that are idols. I'm worshiping myself. I'm worshiping other things. Lord, help me not to be an idolater like this guy. That's what I mean by praying through the scriptures. Read a little bit and talk about it. If it's a bad example, pray that you don't get that way. If it's a good example, pray that you get that way. If it's a command, that you obey it. Whatever principles, whatever needs the response, just ask God to help you. And if you don't understand the text, pray that God would give you understanding. So that you could pray to apply whatever its application is. Because all scripture is, is inspired by God. And it's all profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training righteousness. There's a gem in there somewhere. You just got to find it. So if you can't, ask God to help you find it. Or look in the notes of your study Bible. C. Pray with the aid of devotions, devotionals or hymnals. There's so many things like that. People say, well, you know, what do you mean by that? Well, George Mueller would say this. You know what? I used to have a lousy prayer life. Now, if you've read anything about him, he was just like Mr. Mega Prayer. See, well, he used to have a lousy prayer life. Yeah. He says, my secret to prayer life is I always read scripture first, so I have something to pray about. So my mind kind of gets going in the direction of God and the things of eternity in heaven, and then I pray. That's good. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, what I, he says, find some author that you like. Find somebody you like to read who encourages you, who motivates you, and read some of that until you're wound up. Then get into prayer on fire for God. There's so many different things that you can do out there. I've just collected a few things here. I'm just going to read you some with the time that we have left. And, I, and as I read these things, you ask yourself, does this do anything for you? These are the things that do something for me. And they might for you, and you might think, well, that doesn't do anything for me. And that's okay. Try something else. Morning and Evening by Charles Spurgeon for the morning of May 22nd today. The scripture, he led me forth by the right way. Psalm 107, verse 7. Spurgeon says, change often leads the anxious believer to inquire, why is this happening to me? I looked for light, but lo, darkness came for peace. But behold, trouble. I said in my heart, my mountain stands firm. I shall never be moved. Lord, you hide your face and I am troubled. 
I, it was but yesterday that I could read my title clear. Today, my evidences are dim and my hopes are clouded. Yesterday, I could climb to Mount Pisgah's top and today the la- and, and view the landscape over and rejoice with confidence in my future inheritance. Today, my spirit has no hopes, but many fears, no joys, but much distress. Is this part of God's plan with me? Can this be the way in which God would bring me to heaven? Yes. It is even so. The eclipse of your faith, the darkness of your mind, the fainting of your hope, all these things are but parts of God's method of making you ripe for the great inheritance upon which you shall soon enter. These trials are for the testing and strengthening of your faith. They are waves that wash you further upon the rock. There are winds which waft your ship more swiftly towards the desired haven. According to David's word, so it might be said of you, he brings them to their desired haven by honor and dishonor, by evil report, by good report, by plenty, by poverty, by joy, by distress, by persecution and by peace. By all these things is the life of your souls maintained. And by each of these things, you are helped on your way. Oh, think not, believer, that your sorrows are out of God's plan. They are necessary parts of it. We must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom. Learn then even to count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Oh, let my trembling soul be still and wait your wise, your holy will. I cannot, Lord, your purpose see, yet all is well when ruled by thee. I mean, does that work for you? That works for me. Let's say I could just, after reading that, I could just talk to God all through every line of that. I need all of that. Here's another one that I enjoy. Voices from the Past by Banner of Truth. This is May 21st. Zeal for your house will consume me. John 2.17 by Samuel Ward. These are just little one-page selections from famous Puritan preachers. And they even put them into modern English so that normal people can read them. Zeal is like fire ever climbing and aspiring higher, aiming beyond that which has before and aiming on towards perfection. Zeal desires more. It advances and grows from strength to strength. In it and in and out of season, lazy Christians think zeal is too straight laced. Why not use Christian liberty in some recreations? Zeal will cut off the right hand if it causes him to offend. If anything is praiseworthy, it embraces it. If anything is doubtful, he will not touch it. True zeal will strive to purge itself as Christ is pure. Will true Christianity allow us to bear with any sin? A hot iron cannot help but hiss if cold water is cast upon it. Does not a righteous soul vex itself at open evil? Those who can digest profane and filthy language reveal what devotion they have for the Lord of hosts. The best way for self-examination is to compare our devotion to God with our dealing and our affairs in which we delight. Fire cannot be long smothered. It will either find a vent or go out. There are indeed many vanities that distract and divide the mind of worldlings, but zeal counts only one thing needful. It makes all other things yield and stand by. Herod, for pleasure, will give you half of his kingdom. 
What will some gentleman give for hawks and hounds? Does any manage his time so carefully that he will not steal an hour for his pleasure? Can he not spare his God and his soul half an hour, morning and evening, and a sermon or two during the week? The soul needs its nourishment as well as the body. Why is it that these sit on thorns during a sermon more than at play? Why is a Sunday longer than a holiday? Is it not lack of zeal? Deal honestly and plainly with your soul. Test yourself by these rules. And if you judge yourself to come short of them, amend and be zealous. Anything to pray about there? Probably not for you. I know a guy who needs to apply that. Here's another one. This is called On This Day by Robert Morgan. On May 22nd, the Forgotten Basin. The last half of our Lord's ministry was marred by envy and infighting among his followers. The disciples plotted against each other even on the eve of Christ's crucifixion, prompting him to wrap himself in a towel and wash their feet in a servant's basin. The lesson was lost on many bishops during the ensuing centuries. As churches spread across the Roman world, the bishops of Antioch, Alexandria, and Rome assumed their particular leadership. Antioch and Rome were, after all, prominent in the New Testament records, and the Alexandrian church traced its origin through the evangelist Mark to Peter. The Council of Nicaea 325 placed these three bishops on more or less equal footing. The bishop of Jerusalem, arguing his city deserved recognition, became the fourth world center of Christianity. Soon there was a fifth. Emperor Constantine decided to move the Roman capital to his new city on the Bosporus. And the bishop of Constantinople instantly assumed prominence. The ecumenical council held in Constantinople in 381 said that the patriarch of Constantinople deserved honor next to the bishop of Rome. A low-grade rivalry arose between the two. It worsened when the council of Chalcedon in 451 issued this decree extending the authority of the bishop of Constantinople. With reason did the fathers confer prerogatives on the throne of the ancient Rome and on account of her character as the imperial city and moved by the same consideration the bishops recognized the same prerogatives also in the most holy throne of new rome papal delegates from rome protested on the spot and on may 22nd 452 pope leo launched three angry letters like warheads addressed to the emperor to the empress and to the patriarch of constantinople Leo declared that the elevation of Constantinople was, one, a work of pride, two, an attack on other centers of Christianity, and three, a violation of rights given um, Rome by earlier councils, and four, destructive to the church unity. His letters only aggravated the situation, and Eastern and Western Christianity drifted further apart until complete schism occurred in 1054. They had all, it seems, forgotten the basin, and the towel. That's good. That is good. A little historical devotion if you like history. Everyone's got a different historical thing with a little, at least one spiritual nugget in there. And you can, oh Lord, help me not to be a servant, or help me to remember to be a servant. 
Here's another one. Here's a, a devotion called Worthy is the Lamb by Sola Deo Gloria, a collection of poems. This one's by John Newton, a slave trader saved by grace. Newton writes, Joy is a fruit that will not grow in nature's barren soil. All we can boast till Christ we know is vanity and toil. But that where the Lord has planted grace and made his glories known... Their fruits of heavenly joy and peace are found and there alone. A bleeding Savior seen by faith, a sense of pardoning love, a hope that triumphs over death, give joys like those above. To take a glimpse within the veil, to know that God is mine, are springs of joy that never fail, unspeakable, divine. These are the joys which satisfy and sanctify the mind, which make the spirit mount on high and leave the world behind. No more, believers, mourn your lot. But if you are the Lord's, resign to them that know him not such joys as earth affords. Oh, that's good. I mean, I, I could pray a lot doing that one. Here's another one. Psalms and hymns of Isaac Watts, some of my favorite. He wrote tons of hymns and wrote hymns for every psalm, at least one. Some psalms, multiple. This is a a little hymn based on Psalm 118, verses 6 through 15. He says, and this is the, the section about suffering. The Lord appears my helper now, nor is my faith afraid. What all the sons of earth can do since heaven affords its aid. Tis safer, Lord, to hope in thee. And have my God, my friend, then trust in men of high degree and on their truth depend. Like bees, my foes beset me round, a large and angry swarm, but I shall all their rage confound by thine almighty arm. Tis through the Lord my heart is strong, in him my lips rejoice, while his salvation is my song, how cheerful is my voice. Like angry bees... They girt me round. When God appears, they fly. So burning thorns with crackling sound make a fierce blaze and die. Joy to the saints and peace belongs. The Lord protects their days. Let Israel tune immortal songs to his almighty grace. Mm, That works for me. And then I'm going to close with this one. Valley of the Vision. Collection of Puritan prayers. Uh, Elders read one of these every week when we pray on Tuesday morning for you all. This one is called to be fit for God. Why don't you close your, your eyes with me and just listen as I pray and I'll finish with this. You are maker and sustainer of all things. Day and night are yours. Heaven and earth declare your glory, but I, a creature of your power and beauty, have sinned against you by resisting the dictates of conscience, the demands of your law, the calls of your gospel. Yet I live under the dispensation of a given hope. Deliver me from worldly dispositions, for I am born from above and bound for glory. May I view and long after holiness as the beauty and dignity of the soul. Let me never slumber, never lose my assurance, never fail to wear armor when passing through enemy land. Fit me forever, sense and circumstance. Stay my mind upon you. Turn my trials to blessings that I may draw out my gratitude and praise as I see their design and effects. Render my obedience to your will. 
holy, natural, and delightful. Rectify all my principles by clear, consistent, and influential views of divine truth. Let me never undervalue or neglect any part of your revealed will. May I duly regard the doctrine and practice of the gospel, prizing its commands as well as its promises. Sanctify me in every relation, office, transaction, and condition of life, that, I, that if I prosper, I may not be unduly exalted, and if I suffer, I may not be overly sorrowful. Balance my mind in all varying circumstances and help me to cultivate a disposition that renders every duty a spiritual privilege. Thus, may I be content, be a glory to you, an example to others. Father, we just want to thank you for the exhortation and command to pray to you in secret. May we all schedule times, strict times, when we determine to pray. May we find a place to pray. May we confess our sins when we begin to pray. May we pray about spiritual things the most. May we pray with zeal and passion. And may we keep trying different things until we find those things that make our times of prayer the sweetest, the most zealous, the most passionate and enduring times. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.